Thank you for listening to the Grace Harvest Church podcast. For more information, go to graceharvestchurch.org. Today, we celebrate Palm Sunday. Amen? And Palm Sunday commemorates the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ as King into the city of Jerusalem amidst shouting throngs of admirers. Amen. It was the preparation for a week of suffering and a week of death. Before I get into the message I want to share with you today, we have a video we want to show you because I feel like it lays a foundation for where I want to go in my message, and it does a great job of doing that. It's from the Bible Project. So many of you have watched Bible Project videos, and it's on the kingdom of God. It really gives us a picture of Jesus and who He is and why He came and why even we're celebrating this day. So can we go ahead and roll that video and turn the volume up? There's this beautiful poem. It's in the book of Isaiah. The city of Jerusalem has just been destroyed by Babylon, a great kingdom in the north. And all of these Jewish people, they've been sent away into exile, but a few remained in the city. And they're left wondering, what just happened? Has our God abandoned us? Right, because Jerusalem was supposed to be the city where God would reign over the world to bring peace and blessing to everyone. Now Isaiah had been saying that Jerusalem's destruction was a mess of Israel's own making. They had turned away from their God, become corrupt, and so their city and their temple were destroyed. Yeah, everything seems lost. But the poem goes on. There's a watchman on the city walls. And far out on the hills, we see a messenger. And he's running towards the city. He's running and he's shouting, good news. And Isaiah says, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news. Beautiful feet? Yes. The feet are beautiful because they're carrying a beautiful message. What's the message? That despite Jerusalem's destruction, Israel's God still reigns as king, and that God himself is going to one day return to this city, take up his throne, and bring peace. And the watchmen sing for joy because of the good news that their God still reigns. Now in the New Testament, we find this same phrase, the good news. It's the Greek word euangelion, and it's also sometimes translated with the word gospel. Yeah, so when Christians say, do you believe the gospel, they mean, do you believe the news? But not just any news. In the Bible, this phrase is always about the announcement of the reign of a new king. And in the New Testament, the Gospels use this phrase to summarize all of Jesus' teachings. They say that he went about proclaiming the good news of God's kingdom. So Jesus saw himself as the messenger, bringing the news that God reigns. Yes, but the way that he described God's reign, it surprised everybody. I mean, think, a powerful, successful kingdom. It needs to be strong, able to impose its will, able to defeat its enemies. But Jesus said the greatest person in God's kingdom was the weakest, the one who loves and who serves the poor. And he said that you live under God's reign when you respond to evil by loving your enemies and forgiving them and seeking peace. This is an upside-down kingdom. Now, Jesus also said that this kingdom was arriving with him. Yeah, so for example, there's this really interesting story where there's a high-ranking Roman officer, and he comes to Jesus begging him to heal his servant. And he even calls Jesus his Lord, acknowledging that Jesus is his authority. Jesus praises this man for recognizing what no one else yet had, that not only was Jesus announcing God's kingdom, 
he was the king. And so the word gets out that this Jewish man from Galilee is talking and acting like he's the king of Israel. He's appointing 12 disciples, which are an image of Israel's 12 tribes. He's healing people, forgiving people their sins. And all of this so threatened Israel's leaders that they finally decide to have him killed. And Jesus let them. Yeah, which is a weird thing to do if you're trying to become king. That's right. But for Jesus, this is what had to happen. Jesus saw the sin and the devastation of his people Israel as just one small part of the entire human condition. How all humanity has rebelled against God, resulting in the tragedy and devastation of our whole world. So how is God going to bring his reign over such a world? Jesus believed it would be through an act of sacrificial love for his enemies. This is why in the Gospels, Jesus' crucifixion is depicted as his enthronement as the king of the Jews. Yeah, he receives a crown. He also receives a robe. He's exalted up, not onto a throne, but onto the cross. How beautiful are the feet that bring good news. And the good news now is that Jesus has defeated death and that he reigns as king, that he's dealt with our sin and corruption himself and that he's conquered it with his life and with his love. And then Jesus sends his followers to go out and keep announcing this good news of the upside down kingdom. And to invite everyone to give their allegiance to him, the king who defeated death with his love. Amen. Isn't that a powerful video? So as I said already, we're commemorating today the, the day that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey, and crowds went before him and crowds followed behind, waving palm branches, laying their, their coats on the ground, and, and saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna to the, King of, to the Son of David. And, and, and that's what we're celebrating today, but it's really important that we understand that these two cries, there were two cries that went up within a week of each other. And the first cry was, Hosanna! And the second cry was, Crucify Him. And I want to show you today that Hosanna and Crucify Him go together. That you must cry out, come and save, but you got to be ready for the way that God does the work. Amen? you got to be ready for the cross. So, Jesus entered into... After this great parade, a week of suffering, pain, and death. In fact, as he entered the city, the shouts of Hosanna, he's painfully aware that people will soon be shouting, crucify him. Despite all of this, he seeks to fulfill his father's will and to demonstrate his love by moving steadily to the cross. He does this to fulfill the scriptures and to rescue you and me from sin and death. Today we're going to discover the cries of Hosanna. Hosanna lead to cries of crucify him. And that's completely necessary for the story to come to true conclusion. Amen? So I want to take us into the first cry, the first cry of Hosanna, the cry to be rescued from outward enemies. And I want you to see this particular text here, Matthew 21, 1 through 11, kind of a long text of Scripture. Follow along with me. It'll be on the screen or you can, you know, look on in your own Bible. But look what it says here. It says, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, this is Jesus and his disciples, 
And they came to Bethphage to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you'll find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Amen. Amen. I want to take this text and I, I, I want to break it down and, and look at some some thoughts, some ideas that apply to our lives. And I want you to think about where you're at. And, and the idea is that for the Jews of that time, the cry Hosanna to the king was an acknowledgement of the Messiah coming to save them. But in their mind, that Messiah was coming to save them from all of their external enemies. And they weren't looking at their own lives. They were looking out there at the enemies that they perceive to be the true enemies. And I want to show you how Jesus dealt with that, how he responds to that. So the first thing I want you to notice here, and it's something that I've recognized over the years many times, and that is that everybody loves a party. Everybody loves a parade. People love a bandwagon. All of the Seahawks bandwagon fans don't know what to do with themselves right now. Russell Wilson's gone, Bobby Wagner's gone, and some of you, you're like, I'm out. I'm going to become a Denver Bronco fan because that's where Russell went, right? And it, I've noticed that about people. People love a party. They love an exciting atmosphere. I've witnessed over the years many people who have come to church and they've, they've, you know, they've come into worship and there's a great atmosphere, there's an energy kind of in the room. They don't recognize always that it's God, that it's the Holy Spirit and they love you know, the welcoming atmosphere and they come in and they hear the message and they're moved and they make some kind of a decision. Maybe it's mental assent, maybe it's somewhat felt, but they make a decision to follow Jesus. They jump on the bandwagon, they get kind of moved into the crowd, they get swept up in the zeal of the moment, and then things get hard, and then things get rough, kind of like happened to Jesus in the next week. You know, this idea that the very, some of the very people, possibly, who were singing and yelling, Hosanna, Hosanna, were the next week standing in a crowd saying, crucify him, crucify him, that a change could happen so quickly. And it happened so quickly because we're broken. And we're messed up and we got the wrong enemies a lot of times. We're looking at the wrong stuff and pointing our finger in the wrong places. 
And we get caught up in the moment. We get on the bandwagon. But then when things get hard, when you suffer, when difficulty comes, when you experience a little bit of pushback to your faith, or God doesn't run over here and run over there serving your desires, your wants, and your needs, when you find out that Jesus doesn't exist to make you a success in life, but that we are to bow our life at his feet, that he is Lord, that he is master, that he is king, and that actually we exist for him and for his glory. And he's not a God that we made of our own mind or of our own hands in order to serve our needs, but we are the people who must bow at his feet and acknowledge that he is master, which is what the word Lord means, Lord and King. Amen. Secondly, it's easy to cry out for God to rescue us when it's from outward enemies. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. As I said earlier, Hosanna means come, save us. It's a desperate cry that, be, that, that became connected to a, a messianic chant. It was, it was something that was going to be sung when the king came into the city, conquering Rome beneath his feet, riding on a white horse. Instead, he comes in on a donkey in humility. And he didn't come to deal with enemies out there. He came to deal with enemies in here. Amen. Right here, like you and me, you know, the stuff, right? The people desire liberation from Rome or poverty or some other external enemy. Even in our time, it's easy to see the world in terms of good people and bad people. It's easy to see the world in terms of us versus them. It's easy to look out and you know, put people in groups or classifications in our world and say the problem with America, the problem with Washington, the problem with our world, the problem with our city is them, that group, those people, right? Have you ever thought that those people are sitting in their camp going, the problem with our world is those people and they're pointing at you? Because as long as we can get away with the idea that the problem is out there, that the problem is some external enemy that's making our life bad, and it's always someone else, as long as we can get away with that, we'll never truly look at our own issue. I remember years ago as a young Christian, I, when, when dealing with either groups or individuals, I would hear terms like, um, we need to, you know... We need to hate the sin, but love the sinner. And at first I thought, that's, that's, that's good, right? Hate the sin, love the sinner. Except I always noticed that the sin I was hating was their sin. And then I heard somebody say, hate your own sin, love the sinner. And I thought that puts it in a lot better perspective. Because see, as long as I'm making it about their stuff and their stuff, but I ain't dealing with my stuff, like I shared a couple weeks ago, I got a log in my eye and I'm trying to deal with splinters in someone else's. How many of you know if you got a giant plank in your eye, you're not going to see splinters very well and you're going to walk around hitting people? And that's what we do. And that's what happens culturally is we, we become a people who are very aware of the enemies out there. Our social media posts prove it. It's always them. But we don't take the time to recognize what's going on in here. 
And that's really what Jesus did. You know, you go look at the Gospels and the thing that's shocking about Jesus, Jesus lands in Jerusalem under the reign of Rome. Do you understand? You think it's bad now? Think about Rome. The most powerful empire in the world of that time, when they wanted something, they took it. And they considered it their possession. They crushed their enemies under their feet. They were the steel, the iron feet and legs in the scripture. They were the ones that dominated all of their enemies. If you resisted them, they didn't even think twice about wiping out your entire group and making an example of you and then hanging you on crosses, lighting up roads with your burning corpse, letting the birds pluck your eyes out of your head and showing the whole world this is what happens when you mess with Rome. Jesus lands in the middle of that and you hear him say very little about it. What does he do? He goes after the heart of individuals, religious leaders, people who think that the problem is always someone else but won't recognize the thing that runs through their own heart. You see, I, I remember reading years ago, I can't remember who wrote it, but I remember hearing about the trial of Adolf Eichmann, one of the henchmen of the Nazi regime under Adolf Hitler, responsible for the deaths of hundreds of thousands of people. Wicked, wicked man. And they were doing the trial of Nuremberg. These trials were where they brought in all these Nazi, um, you know, war criminals, and they, they put them on trial, and it was on television. The world watched and they brought in, I remember hearing this, this one Jewish man who had been in a concentration camp, you know, he was sitting there and he said, in my mind, I envisioned a monster. And that's what we say when people do wicked things in our culture, right? Monsters. And I env- he said, I envisioned a monster. And I, I, I was waiting for him to kind of come through the doors as they brought him into the courtroom. And I expected to see this, you know, evil, distorted face. And he said, instead, This frail, normal-looking, kind of average Joe comes walking through the doors, and he said it wrecked him. He said it was at that moment that I realized that the evil that ran through his heart was the same evil that ran through my own. This is a concentration camp survivor that said this. Now, does that mean everybody is going to be an Adolf Eichmann? No, it does not. But it means that the same potential is there. The same seed. Sin is in a seed form. In some of our lives, that seed form grows up into a giant tree in particular areas. And it's terrible and oppressive and its fruit is poisonous. But some of us, maybe in that part of our life, maybe when it comes to violence and anger, we don't let it grow. But there's other parts of our life it grows. And it ruins our relationships, it hurts other people, it hurts us, it's self-destructive. You know, so it's when we quit just looking for the oppressors out there, and I'm not saying we don't need to at times stand up to oppression, but it's got to begin in here. All reformation, all change, every revival, every renewal does not begin with God, deal with them, but it begins with God, deal with me. You think about 2 Chronicles 7, 14. It's quoted all the time. If my people, key, key phrase, if my people who are called by 
my name will humble themselves and pray and turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven. I will forgive their sins and I will heal their land. I I don't hear anything in that prayer. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and shout and scream at the culture to turn from their wicked ways, then I'll hear from heaven because it's their fault. I'll forgive their sin and heal their land. See, we have to recognize that if we're going to cry, Hosanna, save us from enemies, the enemies have to begin in our own heart. I'm hitting it hard in this service. Man. Thirdly, it's possible to get caught up in the moment and what's happening and not even recognize who Jesus really is. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? Wait a minute. Do you see the contradiction? Check it out. There's crowds. There's palm branches. Their cloaks are laid out on the ground. The people are coming into the city celebrating. And what they're crying was only meant to be cried to the Messiah and the king. Hosanna! They even call him, blessed is the son of David. That's who the Messiah was going to be. So the next second, as he's entering into the city and the crowd's being stirred up, somebody says, oh, who is this? Who are we? singing messianic songs to. And the crowds say, and this response is so telling, the crowds don't say, it's our Messiah, the King. He's finally here. He's going to make things right. They don't say that. You know what they say? Uh, this is uh, the prophet Jesus from Nazareth. You know, you know we, we have a long history of prophets. This is another one of them. That's what they say. It's really telling. Many people were crying out to be saved, but they didn't really know who they were crying out to and what it would take for that salvation to become a reality. To this crowd, Jesus was the prophet from Nazareth, but not really their Messiah or their rescuer, their Savior. For Jesus to become their rescuer, something much more profound had to happen. You know, I love reading celebrity accounts Uh, when celebrities talk about being either um, having mistaken identity or people think they're who they are. And one of of the best sites you can find on Twitter is Tony Hawk. Do you all know who Tony Hawk is? Some of you do, some of you. Tony Hawk is a skateboarder who's almost my age now, and I'm not going to tell you how old that is, who made skateboarding, which was always kind of a marginal thing, um, mainstream like nobody else. And, you know, he has one of those recognizable faces and, you know, he used to be on X Games all the time and he's, he's just, he, he's made skateboarding worldwide and mainstream. Okay, so he's a multi-millionaire, probably a billionaire by this time. And, but he, he regularly runs into people and they don't recognize who he is. And I thought this was a funny one. He, t- he tweeted this on, on Twitter recently. He said, I was pulling up to the drive through window of a restaurant And the girl starts to read back my order, and she stops herself, and she says, you're Tony Hawk. And he says, yes. And she says, can I tell everyone? And he says, I suppose. And she says, yo, we got Tony Hawk up here at the window. 
And a voice from the kitchen says, who? (laughs) And he just laughs about it. And he's got story after story after story like that. And you know, that's kind of how we are. Jesus one time said in the gospel of Matthew, uh, he turns to his disciples, he says, who do men say that I am? Who are they saying? And well, some say you're, you know, Jeremiah or you're Isaiah or you're one of the prophets. And, and well, who do you say that I am? Jesus always makes it personal, doesn't he? He doesn't let us get away with what they say. He wants to know what you say. Who do you say that I am? So that's when Peter had his epiphany. You are the Christ, the Son. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus goes, Bam! Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you. My Father in heaven showed this to you, right? So the crowd's crying, Hosanna. They're getting caught up in the moment, right? They're, they're hoping to be rescued from their outside oppressors. And then they don't really recognize who he is, so that's not going to be helpful if you're singing to a king who you think is going to rescue you, but then on the other hand, you're not even sure he's the guy. And then another cry happens less than a week later, and that is the cry of crucify him. And that is the only cry that will ultimately rescue us. That's the only cry that will ultimately save us. Matthew 27, 20 through 26, and this is the cry that rescues us from the sin within Matthew 27, 20 through 26, look at it with me. Now, the chief priests, these are the religious leaders. Yeah, the religious leaders, you know, the pastors, the leaders of the church of that time. Now, the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor, that's Pilate, again said to them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? They all said, let him be crucified. And he said, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and he washed his hands before the crowd saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, his blood be on us and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas and having scourged Jesus, a scourge was a whip with many strands on it that had bone fragments and metal fragments, and when you beat a man with it, it would rip his flesh from his body, exposing his bone, his muscles, and cause him to almost bleed to death. So they scourged him, let him, and having scourged Jesus, they delivered him to be crucified. Now I want to talk about the enemies within. I want to get down to the nitty-gritty. The enemies within. I want you to notice here the different characters. We have Barabbas, we have Pilate, we have the crowd, and we have Jesus. And I want you to see that at different times, all of us can be like a Barabbas. And at different times, all of us can be like Pilate. And at different times, we can all be part of the crowd. 
And what and the good news is, is that Jesus steps in and substitutes for all of those characters in us. You still with me? Hold on. This is where it gets really encouraging and painful too, right? First of all, Jesus substitutes for the Barabbas in each of us. Who's Barabbas? Barabbas had committed murder in an uprising, committed sedition against the state, against Rome. He was called in the Scripture, he's, he's noted, and, and uh, these different words are used as descriptors of him. He was called a rebel, a notorious prisoner, and a criminal. He was deserving of death in the Roman system, and Jesus was worthy of being released because he was an innocent man. Instead, their roles were swapped. Barabbas serves as a picture of all people and reveals that we are all lawbreakers and worthy of death, spiritual death. Jesus has taken our place and our punishment to allow us to go free. So you might say, you know what? I'm not a murderer. I wouldn't hurt a fly. You should kill flies. I just want to say that. That's a, it's a side note. The flies, mosquitoes, definitely. I don't think they're God's creatures. Somehow I think the devil does have a little bit of creative influence. I'm just kidding. I'm just joking. Okay. So Barabbas is the ultimate example of the criminal, of the rebel. Now, come on. Maybe we don't go out and murder people. Maybe we don't rise up against the state. Maybe we don't do But I'll tell you what. Right in this room, probably all of us to some degree, but there are some of us that kind of more lean that way. There's some of you in this room, you're actually proud of your kind of your rebel attitude. Come on, remember, just admit it. There's this thing inside of you. You've been that person in your family. You've been that person in your friend group. I'm kind of the rebel. Yeah, and you like it. You know, you kind of, I'm the rebel. Other people, you're the rebel, and you're like, yeah, I'm the rebel. I'm bad. Yeah. And, and I'll tell you, there's, there's, there are times in life to be a rebel. If evil presents itself, be a rebel. Rebel against it. Push back. But that's not often the case. It's actually things that are lawful. It's God's requirements. It's even, this, even what government tells us, teachers, people in our life, people in authority, we, they, they try to speak into our life and give us direction. God's law. Don't commit adultery, you know, all these different commandments, right? And Jesus said that uh, murder could be redefined. He said murder was hatred in your heart towards your brother. I'm not talking about passing anger. I'm talking about where you are literally, and you know what I'm talking about, where that person, if they say another word, you're having a vision in your mind. Your hands are around their neck, and you're squeezing. You hear their windpipe crush. They're breathing their last, and you're so satisfied. Some of you are looking at me like, what's up, pastor? You okay? <laughs> but all of us at different times have had those moments in our life where, where we literally, we find ourselves thinking like, if that person doesn't shut up, it's over. <laughs> right? And, or we just, you know, we, we despise a person. We, you know what I'm talking about. Somebody comes to the doors and you go the other way. You think about a family member who's hurt you deeply. You think about people in your life. What do you want to do? You may not be a person that will carry it through and actually commit a murder, but in your heart, 
you've murdered him a thousand times. Jesus said that's murder. He said if you look upon a woman to lust after her, and the idea in the Greek is actually you have intent. So it's not just going, whoa, she's a babe, okay. <laughs> it's not that. It's not that. It's going, she's a babe, I want that, and then just being like, oh, how do I make this happen? How can I scheme? How can I, how can I put myself in that position? How can we set up this encounter? How, you begin to fantasize. You begin to think through it. Jesus said if a person does that, they've already committed adultery in their heart. So Jesus, just he got outside just the, the letter of the law, and he got to the human heart. That's Barabbas. And I don't know about you, but I've been Barabbas before probably in the last couple days, right? We've all had that thing inside of our heart. Jesus died for the Barabbas in you, the lawbreaker, the rebel. How about Jesus substitutes for the pilot in each of us? Mm, Who's pilot? He's the one who wants to be free of the responsibility of an innocent man's blood. He doesn't want to take the stand when the stand is in front of him. The, the politician, the coward, the one who gives in to the pressure of the crowd at the moment. The one who should take a stand but doesn't. The one who should get a backbone but doesn't. And again, I can't speak for you, but there have been times in my life when I chickened out in the moment. And I've always been ashamed of it. I'm forgiven and I know I'm loved and I know I'm not condemned, but thank God Jesus had courage to go all the way to the cross for me. Thank God he took my sin upon himself. Thank God he didn't in the moment in the garden of Gethsemane when he was crying out to his father, Lord, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, you can hear it at that moment. If it be possible, let this moment pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. And in that moment, for every human being that's ever chickened out in the moment and lost heart and lost courage and become a wimp, at that moment, Jesus steps in in the substitute and he says, I forgive you and now I give you my courage. See, he substitutes for the coward and the politician in all of us that loses courage at the moment of testing. And lastly, Jesus substitutes for the fickle crowd fickle. You know, that means to kind of be back and forth, wishy-washy, give in to peer pressure, go with whatever the flow is at the moment. They all sh- they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. And all the people said, his blood be on us and on our children. They got caught up in the moment. Days earlier, maybe some in that same crowd, as I said earlier, were shouting, Hosanna, come and save us. And now they're saying, let his blood be on us. And the irony is that his blood is the only thing that can cleanse us, the only thing that can wash us, the only thing that gives hope to our children and the generations to come. Am I talking to anybody? You see, the crowd moves with whatever. Those are the times you've, you've given in to the moment, right, because everybody else is, and you've gone along just to appease make people happy, or maybe because you wanted to be liked or loved or you wanted to be in. I mean, you know, sometimes we, we look at young people, we look at teenagers, at students in school, 
We're like, don't get in, don't, you know, don't give in to peer pressure. If they're saying go out and do this, that, and the other thing, don't do it. Take your stand. And, you know, we're asking them to take a, that, that, that's hard to do. When all your friends around you are like, come on, man, it's cool. Besides, it feels good to get high. It feels good to do this. It feels good. Come on, come on. You know, nobody will have to know. It's okay. And we've all been there. But, you know, it doesn't go away when you quit being a teenager. It's all through life. You get into a work situation, everybody's kind of looking the other way, compromising. They're not being integrous about reporting things or, or about their hours or about their work ethic. Or, and everybody's kind of cheating a little bit. You're going along with the crowd because that's what the crowd does. How many of you know, we, if Jesus doesn't... Look, these, these three groups here, man, they, they kind of nail everything in us, don't they? But here's the good news. Jesus... Stepped in for all of them, for Barabbas, for Pilate, and for the crowd. And he gave his life that we can be forgiven, loved, included. We can be a part of the family of God, and we don't get condemned, all because Jesus substituted for us. Listen, he could have defended himself. He said that he could, from the cross, have called Thousands upon thousands of angels to rescue him and fight for him, and he didn't. He yielded. He gave himself. He said this, no man takes my life from me, but I lay it down willingly, and I pick it back up. You talk about authority. Jesus not only died for us, he rose of his own will. That's power. Or as true Pentecostals say, that's power. That's power. Amen. And that power's for us. So if we're going to look at what that triumphal entry, what that Palm Sunday is really all about, it's about people saying, come and save us, and not really recognizing what it's going to take for it to happen. It's going to take a cross. It's going to take poured out blood. It's going to take one who's willing to substitute for the Barabbas, the Pilate, and the crowd and all of us. And so... If you feel like I hit you on any of those points, here's my word to you. Jesus came for you, for you. And and by the way, by the way, not just one time when you made a decision on a Sunday and you came to the altar, you went to the cross, hallelujah. But over and over and over in the Christian life, Jesus substitutes for us. By the way, did you know you need a Savior more than just the one time you say, Jesus, be my Lord and Savior? You need a Savior regularly to rescue you out of the garbage that happens to you and that you engage in in your life. You need a Savior every day and a King and a Lord. And He's here among us right now. Why don't you stand with me? Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine on you. May the Lord be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his face upon you and give you peace, give you shalom. Go with God. He goes with you. God bless you, church.